We'll turn again then to, uh, to Matthew chapter number 21. We'll pick up where we left off last week. And uh, again, if you're using a pew Bible, I believe you should be able to find this passage on, on page 775 or right in that area. And uh, we'll continue. Last week we looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus. And uh, we'll continue with a few more very interesting episodes that uh, we have recorded in Scripture about Jesus' uh, final visit to Jerusalem here. Matthew 21. And we're going to pick up in verse number 12 this morning. So if you found your place there, I'll begin reading. And you can follow along in Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who had sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there in the morning as he was returning to the city he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves and he said to it may no fruit ever come from you again and the fig tree withered at once and when the disciples saw it they marveled saying how did the fig tree wither at once and jesus answered them truly i say to you if you have faith and do not doubt You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We'll stop there for today and let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we study. Heavenly Father, now as we come to a portion of our service where we look at your scripture, of course, we we know that these are your words. They are words from above. That is truth which you've revealed and, uh, and kept for us so that we can read and study and understand. But we also know that that mere words on a page and us just looking at them is not what is needed, Lord. We need need one, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to, to understand these things so that two, we can apply them in our lives. 
Lord, it is, it is you who have us the words of eternal life. So I pray that they would not just be black and white on, on paper, but that your word would be, as, as we know of it, alive and active and sharp. And as we see you, Lord Jesus, in these words, as we see your, your passion and your, your righteous anger, and as we see your care, and as we see your wisdom, and as we see your authority, Lord, would we, would we be in awe of you, and would we serve you, and would we worship you, bowing down because of what we learned today, and use this passage of scripture, Lord Jesus, to change us all. All of us need daily renewing of our mind, daily strength to follow. Lord, would this be a source even now in this moment? And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask for a show of hands, it would probably be a, a pretty good representation. If I asked if you've ever been taken by false advertising. Uh, we probably all have experienced something that had a lifetime guarantee, only to find out when you read the fine print after it breaks that, well, there were more stipulations than benefits, and, and you probably voided that guarantee somehow. Or maybe you've gone into a restaurant based on a promise that they had the, the world's best something, fill in the blank. And uh, then you try it and you wonder if they've ever tasted anything else because I think there was only one contestant in the running of that competition. False advertising is frustrating. Beyond that, it's, it's immoral. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just an annoyance, but sometimes it can be deadly or damaging. Sometimes false advertising too isn't so blatant. It, it might just be assumed. You might sit on a perfectly good-looking chair only to realize it was propped up by something temporarily. Or maybe you go to step up a perfectly good-looking set of stairs while unbeknownst to you, uh, a couple of those stair treads rotted out over the winter. When things appear to be something that they are not, there are always problems that follow. And uh, in our passage today, we come across this idea, this this really occasion of false advertising in a couple ways. And in this case, the false advertising is that there is an appearance of life and vibrance when there really isn't. There's an appearance of, of thriving and bustling when there really is a dormancy. As we come into this section of Matthew, we're seeing that Jesus comes up against the, the outward display of sort of the official religion in Jerusalem. And what he finds is not what he's looking for. He comes looking for faith and faithfulness. What he finds is really a skeleton. And we've known all along that Jesus detests hypocrisy. Just consider a couple things he said way back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He warns against that outward performance-like faith and says it is really empty. Later on, we read something very similar in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 7, speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites. 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, to have religion, but only outwardly, or to give lip service, we might say, to the truth without bearing an inward reality, it's something that the Lord does not tolerate. He does not accept it. He certainly doesn't applaud it. And when Jesus comes into the temple and faces the authorities there, we begin to see his zeal, the fervor that Jesus has for true faith and righteousness in a whole new way. He comes up against the shell of religion that was being practiced and his righteous anger is kindled. We'll see that Jesus' authority is shown in public as he reveals his passion for faith and righteousness. And as we see this today, may we see the heart of our Lord and submit to his authority. Well, this section of scripture we read today really is three different little episodes. And the first one is a, a cleansing and a realignment, a cleansing and a realignment. We started in verse 12, and this is right after the triumphal entry. And we find out that Jesus' destination was, was the temple. He was coming to Jerusalem to go to the temple, which is no surprise. that The temple complex was the destination for the, the pilgrimage that many thousands of people were making during this Passover festival. Now, the temple, as we think of it, the place of sacrifice and the, the Holy of Holies where no man could go except the high priest one day a year, that part was, was relatively small was confined within a smaller space, but the temple complex as a whole was at this time enormous. Herod the Great had done a work of not only building much of this, but it kept expanding it. And by the time he was done and during this period, the, the, the general court of the temple was around 36 acres in size. That's a lot of space. And the majority of that space was, was the outer court, or what was known as the court of the Gentiles, where not just Jewish people could come in, but even people from the nations could come in. And it would have been here in the outer court, as Jesus and his entourage had just entered the walls, that this episode would have taken place. They would have approached from the east, having coming from Bethany and Bethphage on that donkey, and immediately they come in and Jesus' passion is kindled. And he did something that would burn an image into people's minds. He drove out, it said, all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those sold pigeons. We've, we haven't seen action like this from Jesus before. Three years of ministry have been recorded in the scripture, but in Matthew, we, we've not seen this. What has gotten into Jesus? Now, interestingly, John also records a cleansing of the temple. His is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and 
while some think it's the same one, the details are quite different. I believe that Jesus did this a couple times, one at the beginning and one at the end of his ministry. And the zeal and passion for the true purpose of the temple was always in his mind. But nevertheless, what he had done the first time had been undone over the last few years. And he had seen it because he'd been back to the temple many times in between. And this time, especially on Passover, this feast attracted many, many times the usual number of people in Jerusalem. And uh, many of them traveled a great distance. Jesus and his disciples had, had traveled over 100 miles from where they started going south to where they are now. And there were many Jews who came from even further than that. And if you were coming as a Jewish person to Passover, you were coming, at least in part, to sacrifice. And if you were going to sacrifice, you needed an animal. Well, in comes the temple market because it would have been difficult to, for many people to carry with them a sheep if they were wealthy enough or even to transport the pigeons many hundreds of miles on foot. Well, maybe it would have been better just to buy them there. So that market opened up and it was a, it was a normal thing. People would purchase their sacrifices in Jerusalem as they came for these feasts or as they came to worship. And over time, well, what better place is there now that this outer court is so large, what better place is there to sell these sacrifices than in the temple complex itself? So you can imagine this large open space filled with merchants, with hundreds, thousands of sheep for sale, as well as pigeons. There were tables for people to, to exchange currency because you had to pay a temple tax in a, in a very certain coin. And this was the busiest of the busiest. One of the first days of the Passover week, many, many, many foreign people coming in. Not only was this a good opportunity for these sellers of animals and exchangers of currency just because of the busyness, it was also a good opportunity for extortion. Have you ever attended a, a major sporting event? Over the years, I've had a, quite a few opportunities to attend Red Sox games at Fenway Park in Boston. And I've also had quite a few opportunities to visit Boston in the off season, so to speak. And it never, ceases to amaze me the difference in the amount you pay for parking if it's a Red Sox game day versus just a nice fall day. A $5 parking spot on a normal day is suddenly $40 if the Sox are in town. And if parking is premium in Boston during Red Sox games, then lambs were a premium in Jerusalem during Passover. And there are records of this extortion. We know that it was common. Even the, the pigeons, the, the sacrificial animals for the poorer people, there are some records that say the prices were elevated as much as 40 times if you bought them right there and then. Even beyond the extortion, just the fact that the temple had turned into a marketplace was too much. And Jesus called it as it was as he drove the merchants out, as he flipped over the money changers' tables, as he, as he cast down the chairs of those who were selling doves, he spoke very fitting words. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. 
a den of robbers in the house of prayer. Now, Jesus didn't just make up these words. He's quoting. He's quoting scripture. Isaiah 56 gives us the part about the house of God being a house of prayer. And Jeremiah 7 speaks of woe to those who make his house a den of robbers. Isaiah 56 is is wonderful. It's a prophecy about those from other nations who would come in and joyfully sacrifice in the temple, and their their sacrifices would be accepted. And the quote, the full quote says that it would be a house of prayer for all peoples. Now there in the very outer court where all peoples could come in, a place where the outsiders, the Gentiles, could come in and, and pray and worship, There, instead of it being a place for all peoples to come, it was simply a marketplace. Instead of being a solemn place of prayer, it was a madhouse, a literal zoo. Not only did it profane the temple itself, but it did a great disservice to those who came with a true heart of worship. Now, Jesus cast out the sellers, but it also says he he cast out those who bought there. Apparently, for some, it was just a convenience. No, we've got the money. There's no need to bring the lamb. We'll buy one in Jerusalem. It's easier that way. We'll buy one right there in the temple. We don't even have to to walk it a mile. For them, there was no need to recognize the holiness of that place. Just do the business that you need to do in order to keep up the tradition. It was outward religion. They got their lambs. They got their sacrifices. But at what cost? Now, we know that Jesus knew what he was doing. It wasn't just a fit of rage because he didn't do this and then storm out and hide. He did this and then he stayed there. We read in verse 14 that the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. He ministered to them. Some records indicate that there were certain kinds of people not just Gentiles, but certain types of people, those who had disabilities and blindness that were not allowed to to fully worship in the temple. There were concerns about different kinds of uncleanness and ritual impurity on their part. But Jesus, after making this grand scene and cleansing the temple, not only does he welcome these who were considered unclean, but he heals them. And it's amazing how we see at once in this story, Jesus' heart for the meek and the lowly and the outcasts, but also his anger and his resistance against those who were arrogant in heart and those who knew better. We see that in the very next lines, as the chief priests and the scribes saw what Jesus was doing, especially when they heard the words of the little children, that they were furious. The chief priests and the scribes would have been part of the the Sanhedrin, which was sort of the ruling class in Judaism in that day. They would have been the ones who just a few days from now will, will argue vehemently for and have Jesus' death accomplished. And now their anger is being kindled because they see Jesus They see his healing, the work of his his casting out these money changers and merchants, and they hear the words of these children 
who were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. Now, these children were just crying out probably what they had heard in the streets as Jesus approached on the donkey. The children were crying out what everyone should have been crying out. And just as we saw last week, Jesus allowed the people to speak of him in this way. He also lets the children speak. And they may have had just the least of understanding, but in the purity of their heart and their words, they were speaking the truth. And at all this, uh, these men were furious, and they said, do you hear what these are saying? In other words, aren't you going to stop them? Don't you know that what they're saying isn't true? Don't you see them causing such a ruckus? Don't you see them making such a big scene here? Jesus, do you even hear them? And what Jesus does <laughs> Here is amazing. They give him an opportunity to back away. They, he could have said, you know what? I didn't, I didn't really hear what they were saying. There's so much going on. I'll, I'll silence them. He could have sort of saved face by saying, well, they're just children. They're innocent. They don't, they're not really saying the truth. But instead, instead, what he does is he quotes from Psalm 8. Now, we read that at the beginning of our service. And this quote from Psalm 8 not only affirms that the children are doing a good thing, but it also affirms that they were speaking the truth. Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise to the Lord, a psalm of, of majesty, as we saw. And it was said that out of the mouths of infants and babies, you have ordained strength or, or you have ordained praise. And in this case, Jesus says, well, here it is. Out of the mouths of these little children, praise is coming. It's just the way it's supposed to be. And by accepting this, it's as if he was saying, yes, I hear what they're saying, and it's true. It would have been a jaw-dropping moment for these leaders because, again, they, maybe they were giving him the benefit of the doubt but he did not take any opportunity to shirk back from what was being said. He was essentially saying, yes, I am the son of David, as they say, and their praise is fitting. It's interesting because the religious leaders who were in charge of things operating well in this place, they had even temple police who, who kept order. They were fine with the house of God being made a house of robbers. But when little children began to praise the Lord, it was too much for them. When little children began to lift up Jesus for who he was, they were furious. They had missed the point. The temple was a good business place, but this praise, which truly belonged there, was not acceptable for them. They had taken what was supposed to be a place of prayer and praise and turned it into a marketplace. They had taken what was supposed to be a court for all kinds of people to come in and worship the Lord and turned it into a place where not even the little children of Israel could worship the Lord. 
They had taken what was supposed to be prayer and praise and turned it into a mere outward shell, a formality. And before we even go on in the passage, we could ask that of us. Do we take what is supposed to be prayer and praise and turn it into mere outward religion? We could ask that maybe in a big way about our own church services. Do we come at the the right time on Sunday morning and maybe put on a little bit nicer clothes than we sometimes wear and sing the songs that we know so well and participate, given the offering, take the Lord's Supper? Do we do that? But it's just business as usual. Even personally. Do we take our our relationship with the Lord as a status that we acquired long ago when we prayed a sinner's prayer or was baptized, but now it's just business as usual? Beware of what is supposed to be prayer and praise turning into mere outward shell. Well, we read on. And Jesus' time in Jerusalem goes on, and we find next that a, there's a curse and an object lesson. Jesus leaves the temple and uh, went back out to Bethany, a little bit to the northeast, and he stayed there. In the other gospel records, we read that he did this. That's where he was staying all week during this time. And in the morning, as he came back to the city, He became hungry, and he saw a fig tree by the wayside, verse 19. And he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the tree withered at once or withered quickly. I'm not a person with a green thumb. I dig a little dirt, and I like running the rototiller. That's about it. And uh, I have no experience with trees, especially fig trees, maybe the odd uh, fig Newton now and then, but I certainly don't grow those. But uh, everything I read says that fig trees grow figs and leaves around the same time. Uh, Mark's gospel gives us the, the truth here that it, it was not the season for figs yet. It was, it was early spring. Uh, it wasn't time for figs which is an important part of understanding this little episode, because if Jesus looked from a distance as he was coming down the road and saw leaves on the tree, he would probably think it's curious. Well, that's a little early, but he also would think where there's leaves, there's supposed to be figs. And he was hungry. He was a man. And he went to the tree and would have picked those early figs and eaten them. Except he got there and found nothing on it, it says, but leaves only, verse 19. And that's an important phrase. Only leaves, but no fruit. Signs of fruit, but no fruit. It was false advertising. So Jesus, all in one action, performed a little miracle and also gave a visual parable. And he curses the tree. And we read not only here, but in in Luke and Mark as well, that the tree withered and it withered quickly, so quickly that when they came back to it later, we read in Mark, it was totally withered. Now, if you 
have a tree that goes from vibrant green to totally withered and shriveled in a day, that is quick. How could it be? The, the disciples marveled, we read here. How could the tree wither so quickly? Jesus explains and he gives them a lesson on faith. He says, if you have faith, true faith, and, and do not doubt, verse 21, you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. This is a wonderful lesson. Uh, it's a lesson on individual faith. It's a lesson on true faith. The cursing of this fig tree with false advertising points to the rejection of the false religion of the leaders in that day. It's a little bit of a parable. There was no true faith there, only an outward show. There was no real life or fruit, only leaves. We read in the Sermon on the Mount last year, beware, Matthew 7, 15, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The official form of, of religion in Jesus' day was it was a bad tree. It was a fruitless tree. Now, there were many people, people like Simeon and Anna, people like Mary and Joseph, people like the disciples who were faithful. But as a rule, the temple may have been bustling. The Pharisees and chief priests may have been doing well. The, the temple taxes may have been getting paid regularly, but there were only leaves, no fruit. There may have been a good display of, of outward piety, but there was no life within. It's interesting how Jesus, as an a example of faith, says, that they could say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it would go. That's, of course, it's hyperbole. Jesus is making a big statement in order to illustrate the importance of faith, how that, how that nothing truly is impossible with the Lord. We learned that a couple chapters ago. But it's also telling because this mountain that they were walking toward would have been the Temple Mount. And that very temple within the disciples' lifetime would not be thrown into the sea, so to speak, but it would be utterly destroyed. Jesus, who in Matthew 12 has already claimed to be the one who is greater than the temple, well, he's more interested in true faith than he is in all the religious trappings in the world. He's more interested in the, the quiet prayers in the court of the Gentiles by outsiders than he is in all the beauty and bustling business of religion, if there's no faith. Jesus' passion is not for meaningless activity. Uh, being a follower of Jesus is not busy work, so we just appear religious. It's not just uh, something to take up our time on Sunday. Jesus' passion is not for empty activity, but it is for faith. And the question becomes then, are we fig trees that have leaves but no fruit? 
There could be no greater condemnation for a, a church or a, a group of believers or even an individual Christian than, than for us to give off the appearance of life, but not to have the real fruit of faith. A busy and bustling assembly with great offerings and beautiful facilities and, and every program imaginable might still be a fig tree with leaves, but no fruit. Religious activity does not true worship make. Uh, traditions do not make true faith. Jesus is interested in true living faith, faith that produces fruit. And he connects it here with prayer. In verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Prayer is, is so obvious, an exercise of our faith and an example of our faith. But how often can even our prayer life become a tree with leaves but no fruit? It can happen in, in public prayer meetings, for sure. We, we utter words that we know we should utter. We, we know the phrases. We repeat the requests out loud. But our many words might be leaves with no fruit. And in our private prayer, it's so easy for our prayer time to become an activity that we complete or, or, or something that can be checked off of a list without there being any real life behind it. And that life, of course, Jesus says, is faith. Faith, which he did not find in those religious leaders. Faith, which he did not find even in the bustling temple complex with its marketplace transition. Faith, which is essentially trust. Do we fully trust the ones that we are, the one that we are praying to personally? Do we fully trust? Even when our bank account is doing fine and the bills are paid and our health is well, are we still trusting fully in the Lord? In our churches, when, when the offerings are good, when there's plenty of oil in the tank, when the attendance is up, when you name it, do we still trust as we come to the Lord realizing that it all depends on him? And faith includes not just trust, but it also includes faithfulness, which is not just merely doing what we're supposed to do. Faithfulness is doing what we're called to do because the one who called us is, is trustworthy and faithful. We could obey outwardly for fear or in order to have the applause of men, but that kind of obedience is not faithfulness. No, may our lives and our church and our families be not a tree with leaves but no fruit, but may there be fruit that abounds in faith. When Jesus comes to us, so to speak, of course, he sees us at all times, but when he comes to us, may he find faith. Well, finally, the one last story that we read today is this when jesus came back he left the area where the fig tree is and they made their way again to the temple and and he was teaching and the chief priests and the elders some more of those those leaders from the sanhedrin came up to him as he was teaching and said by what authority 
By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? These things is probably a reference, of course, to his teaching, but also the miracles he'd done, the cleansing of the temple just a day or two before. Jesus certainly did have authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read when he came down from the mountain, the people were astonished because he taught as one with authority and not their normal teachers. And he did. Jesus taught and healed and even cleansed the temple with authority. And of course, we know that authority came from his Father, from heaven above. But these men were more concerned with, with who authorized him to do this here in their temple. Who authorized him to, to cast out these merchants and to, to heal these blind and lame men? And who authorized him to, to receive praise from these little children? Now, Jesus answered in a way that is, of course, his usual masterful way. He asked them a question, and he says, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Now, he asked them this question because he knew that the answer to that question would be also the answer to their question. We know that John was a true prophet from God. And his baptism, which is maybe just a way of referring to his whole ministry, was a, a baptism of repentance, preparing the way for the Messiah. John's ministry was to point to the Messiah, who is Jesus. And Jesus' question put them in a real pickle because John was a polarizing character. And no matter how they answered this question, they were in trouble. If they answered the way in which most people believe that John was a true prophet, his authority came from God, then they would also have to answer that way about Jesus. And they would have to answer, why didn't you believe in him then? But they couldn't stomach to answer that way about John, and they couldn't stomach to answer that way about Jesus. But on the other side, though, there was the problem of consequences. If they answered, well, John was just a man, then they would be in fear of the crowds. It's a bad place to be in between conscience and consequence and to not have the stomach to choose either choice. But that's where these men were. And it was telling about their kind of leadership. On one hand, they were, they were playing to the whims of the people. But on the other hand, they didn't even have the fortitude to, to stand up for what they really believed. They were not strong men of faithful conviction. They were men who could easily be swayed by one side of the occasion or the other. And they landed in the middle, which was no place to land at all. It's probably a little lesson for here because sometimes we come up against these dilemmas where if we proclaim our faith and our love for the Lord, we may be ridiculed by some. But on the other hand, if we deny our faith for him, then we run up against what we know is true. There's no middle ground. And I don't know answer to get us out of a tough situation. It doesn't make the question go away. And it didn't make the question go away for these men either. They were still troubled by it. They would be. Even after they put Jesus to death, they made sure his tomb was guarded. So nobody could come take his body.
At the end of the day, dear one, when we consider who is Jesus, when we consider his authority, his teaching, there's not a lot of middle ground. We can defer that question for a while. We can say, I don't want to answer that right now. We can say, I don't know, and either fight against our conviction of what's true or we fight against repercussion by the crowds. But at the end of the day, that question can only be deferred for so long. At the end of the day, will you run to Christ? Will you say, yes, I know. You are who the little children said you were. You are the one who has authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. And yes, many have lost in this day and in ours houses and, and jobs and family and friends and even their own lives for following him. But none who have lost these things are hopeless. Because while maintaining a shell of religion or a shell of, of acceptedness in our lives may be comfortable for a while, it is empty. At the end of the day, will we be found with true faith? Will we recognize Jesus' authority and his greatness? And will we follow him? Will our lives be trees with leaves but no fruit? looking full but actually empty? Or will we be those who later in the scriptures we read are filled with the fruit of the Spirit? Will Christ find us faithful? Let's pray.